0: It's Sunday morning, time for the Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter, brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Good morning, welcome to the Great Outdoors show, Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. Thank you for joining me as we roll into May. And I have to start off with a pretty interesting announcement. I'm going to talk about a number of things this morning, but I'm going to start off with an announcement that I think is great for the conservation community. There is a new entity, the International Order of T. Roosevelt. And for those of you hearing this for the first time, it's because it is the first time. I highly respect your group of individuals has determined that in the world of conservation there is a role to play for an organization that works internationally and has been a proponent of hunting and the shooting sports traditions and the outdoors and so the international order of t roosevelt has been formed uh it's part of the it actually it's doing business as that it's the old shikari Shikar Safari Club Foundation, and they are going to focus on the future of hunting. They are going to focus on how we can have proper wildlife management, and we'll talk a lot more about it once they get started, but they're serious. Aurelia um, Shipwich, the former director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is their new executive director, um, and so they're launching in a big way. It's the group behind it are are serious international conservationists and i think that they will add to the dialogue of the of the conservation community and i think they can do a lot to further uh, hunting and the shooting sports not only in the united states but around the world Uh, so i will have more information on this but if you want to learn you're probably among the first to know uh that the international order of t roosevelt has been formed and it's going to work in the conservation field, and and I, I think it's it's good for all of us, as I said a moment ago. Uh, one of the things that's been on everybody's mind, what is going on with the weather? The one thing we can't control, the one thing we love to talk about. I pay particularly close attention to the weather in the spring because it determines, to a large extent, what the breeding conditions are going to be for birds in the midwest it also determines to a large extent what big game populations are going to be in the west you know do we get bad blizzards and and snowstorms that can kill lots of fawn and young of the year Uh, and when do those storms come in the midwest we know that cold and wet springs are no good for turkeys and doves and all kinds of, of songbirds and so here we go again We've had one of the wettest, if not the, depending where you live, the wettest April on record, and it's been cold. And so far, the first week of May, it looks more like late February than it does early May. Uh, The weather now is projected to change and get much more spring-like in the coming week, but I think a lot of the damage uh, is already in. We have probably negatively, once again, impacted the early nesting of birds throughout the Midwest. May is a critical month, though, so if May were to turn warm and and, and much and drier, we still would find that, that there can be a pretty good hatch of birds, but if this trajectory continues of a, of a wet, cold spring into about the third week of May, um, once again, pheasants and quail and turkeys and, and doves will will uh, not have a great year throughout the midwest. Last year was was outstanding, but as you know from listening to the show and your own experiences, spring in the midwest seems to be changing and not changing for the better if you like to be outdoors. It's wetter and it's colder and in the south where turkey populations are definitely have been on the decline and a lot of individuals think it's it's a number of factors weather being one of them. You cannot have strong populations with unfavorable weather. The south has been extremely wet again. So um, stay tuned. We've got about three weeks to turn this around uh, and then we'll know what it's going to be like for the year. Uh, Further north on the prairies, uh, it depends where you are, but it's vastly improved from a month ago. The eastern part of North and South Dakota on the east side of the Missouri Koto, which is the most important breeding waterfowl area in the U.S., uh, has seen a lot of moisture and the drought conditions have have basically been eliminated east of the Missouri River. If you move on up into Canada, uh, which also produces roughly half of the continent's waterfowl uh, conditions are not as good, but they are better than they have been uh, last year at this time, and and certainly they're improved over what they were a few weeks ago when we last talked about it. It's still plenty of time on the prairies for nesting waterfowl, but the one thing that we, we do know from years of researching this is late springs are seldom good springs. And it, it is a late spring, but it's better than it was last year. So. That's what's going on in the world of the prairies. I do want to talk for a moment about this, this bird flu that is, uh, is making the rounds. It seems like we're, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, the headline, a worrisome new bird flu is spreading in American birds and may be here to stay. Uh, several weeks ago, I touched on this bird flu that was first discovered in a widgeon in the Carolinas in January, and now... An awful lot of poultry farms have had to um, eliminate their populations because of this bird flu. Uh, it is definitely a pathogen that travels in migratory waterfowl. One of the things that they think is is different about this is it's, it's, a, it's a more serious strain, and it also seems to be uh, impacting potentially um, other bird species, such as birds of prey, that may um, may eat birds that um, have died from this bird flu and I mentioned recently that there was some snow goose hunters in in the Dakotas who picked up more dead snow geese in one morning than the uh, Center for Disease Control thought uh, actually had been killed died from this in the entire north and all of the United States so our data as it often is in this case is not good hunters, as they often are, are the best eyes for these kind of things. With the snow goose season having wrapped up uh, as the birds moved north, hunters reported seeing these diseased and sick birds in greater numbers than was reported by the Center for Disease Control. In fact, enormously greater numbers. But the risk to humans, we we don't think there is any. Uh, And I quote directly here, the risk to humans seems low, but the risk to domestic poultry is much higher. And so We're going to see what happens this fall. The last time the bird flu came through, the Fish and Wildlife Service courted, did not follow through, but they courted the idea of, contemplated the idea of of restricting hunting seasons or the transportation of birds. You will recall that we had a situation a few years ago, which I and others tried to get changed. We were unsuccessful. And that was if you were hunting uh, birds in Canada, you couldn't bring them back to the United States. Even though they were f- frozen, they were cleaned and they were frozen, you could not bring them to U.S. Customs. I, I expect that that will be on the table again. Um, and and what I pointed out at the time, as did, did many others, uh, was, wait a minute, the bird flu is transported from one bird to the next by birds that are alive and flying by their droppings and things like that. A bird that you shoot in Manitoba and it's cleaned and it's frozen is not going to be able to transmit bird flu to a bird in the United States when you cross the border. Nonetheless, the Department of Agriculture didn't want to hear any of that. We'll see what happens this time around. Uh, There also could be attempts by some states to to stop the transportation of, of frozen birds to other states. The best of my knowledge none of this makes makes great sense or actually makes any sense hunters are the ones who are punished by this but i do think if you're thinking of going to canada and this situation continues be prepared for the united states department of agriculture to say nope i don't care what form those birds are in frozen or not or cleaned or not they're not coming in the united states we'll have more on that but it's certainly worth monitoring and you know i'm not an alarmist, but. Um, This appears to be much more significant than the outbreak we had in 2014 and 2015. Um, It just appears a lot more birds are being affected, as well as raptors are being affected, which is uh, somewhat new. I'll be back in just a moment with more on the great outdoors. In the meantime, I thank you so much for listening. This is Charlie Potter. on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And now a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland Chevrolet Dealers. In the field, hunters need to be alert, sense the environment around them and know exactly where they are, communicate seamlessly with their dogs. And when it comes to pickup trucks, you want the same qualities. The all-new Chevy Silverado comes with an available 4G Wi-Fi hotspot for seamless communication. It's designed to handle the toughest loads with advanced trailering technology, tough on the road and off. And the all-new design gives you more cargo space than the competition. Chevy Silverado is the most dependable, longest-lasting, full-size pickup on the road. Plus, there's never been a better time to see your local Chevy dealer about the big fix lease. It's an amazing lease deal that can lower your monthly payments and give you more Chevy, all for less money. That's a treasure hunt. So head to your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and see why Chevy is the number one best-selling brand in Chicagoland, now eight years running. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter here on WGN Radio, and thank you for being with me And as I continue to go around the country on interesting news to do with conservation. There was a story this week that really did catch my attention in the area of water. We talk a lot about water on this show, or lack thereof in the West in particular, and the effects it's going to have. Well, Las Vegas is taking steps that, of course, Las Vegas is a desert. We should be reminded of that. Las Vegas is outlawing lawns. Lawns along sidewalks, lawns in condominiums, lawns in all over the place are being, they're not only, is it, it's not a ban on new lawns, that's happened. You have to take out your old lawns and you have to replace it with desert landscaping or with some kind of astroturf or fake grass. So it's terrific for the, uh, it's terrific for, if you will, the landscaping business The desert was never meant to be a place for robins and pelicans and the birds that now populate them. If you've ever been down to Palm Desert and Palm Springs and you travel around and you look at the 120 golf courses that are there or just go on Google Earth sometime, it's actually kind of fun. If you're ever bored, go on Google Earth and and have a look at the desert. Palm Desert, Palm Springs, Phoenix, Las Vegas. You would think, God, this was actually an area of pretty significant wetlands. Of course, they're all artificial. And the number of birds that use these areas is, has increasingly, has, has increased over time. Uh, I was recently in Palm Desert, and what did I see? I saw a nesting pair of Canada geese. In millennium, from the beginning of time, Canada geese did not nest in Palm Desert. But they do now, because we provided habitat for them. And they do nest in Las Vegas and other areas in the desert. So birds are adapting. But what Las Vegas is doing is saying, tear out the grass. Under a state law passed last year, the first of its kind in the nation, patches of grass found along streets and in housing developments and commercial sites in and around Las Vegas must be removed in favor of desert-friendly landscaping. They are not able to water these areas. The Lake Mead Reservoir and other reservoirs, which are Colorado River water water reservoirs are at all time lows. In fact, the state of Utah, which has southern Utah, and me, southern Nevada has over two and a half million people living there. And last year it had Las Vegas in the area had around forty million visitors. Ninety percent of its drinking water. Ninety percent of the water in southern Nevada, taking care of those two and a half million people and forty million visitors comes from lake mead reservoir which is behind the world famous hoover dam 90 percent of the drinking water and that reservoir is at its lowest level in history in fact the water is so low in lake mead that the original uh, outflows that they use to pump the water out of the lake into the pipes to feed las vegas with water is dry it's above the water level so some, someone in the Water Resources Board in, Water Authority Board in Nevada was smart a few years ago. They decided, they looked at the trend, which has been going, the lake's been getting lower and lower since 2000 with a couple of exceptions, and they decided to spend a billion and a half dollars putting in a much deeper intake and a new pumping station. So now their intake is at the very bottom of the lake. So as the big bathtub goes dry, they still have water. nonetheless. It is a serious situation in the West. We don't think about it in the Midwest. As I said at the top of the show, here we are with, again, one of the wettest Aprils in history. Well, if you're in the West, it's just the opposite. It is as dry as it can be, and it builds upon years of drought now. So if you have a lawn in Las Vegas, it's got to go. It's not even a a question. It's going. And um, you have to replace it with AstroTurp or whatever it is, and I was thinking about about this, and, and yes, it'll save. They think it'll save a lot of water. They think actually uh, it could save as much as 70% of the water that's currently being used in the desert is going to water lawns and golf courses. The golf courses are going to stay because there's money there, but this will have a profound impact on the birds that have set up housekeeping in the desert because without lawns, and grass we don't have worms and we don't have all kinds of bugs they don't grow on astroturf so i do think it's one of the one of the oddities about setting up home in a place where there is not supposed to be any water and you put lots of water there and you attract birds the result is that um they're going to actually be now time to move on again and speaking of moving on with one little bit left in the show there was an ohio politician that I thought was terrific. And then he changed his mind. You know in the air I've talked a lot about feral cats and the impact of cats on our bird populations. And when Cornell University published its now highly publicized study that says we've lost three billion birds. That's three billion birds in the last 50 years in the United States. One of the sources they identified was feral cats. So an Ohio politician suggested a hunting season for feral cats. And maybe I should continue this next week cuz it's it's a pretty interesting story that takes longer than the, than the 30 seconds I have left. But what I will say is like so many politicians he quickly changed his mind. Headline Ohio politician suggests a hunting season for feral cats, then quickly backtracks under assault by cat lovers. We know that cats kill a lot of birds. This is not an assault on cats. This is an assault on feral cats, which are destroying so much of the wildlife in this country. I'll have more on that next week. I do thank you very much for joining me, and I hope you have a great week in the great outdoors. This is Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.